they're not staying there because they love John Doe, who's a normal business owner. They're not staying there because they love and they're passionate about selling paper clips at the end of the day. They're staying there because of the people that they work with and the interpersonal relationships that they've created and the quality of life that they create. Hello, innovators. I'm Todd Wyant, and welcome to the Bridging the Gap podcast presented by Applied Software Great Tech Group. You're invited to join our MEP and construction innovation adventure with a mission to propel this great industry forward. My guest today is Bryson Rayom. Bryson is a self-proclaimed idea guy and prides himself on dealing with stress well while always maintaining a positive perspective. His knowledge was built from the ground up as he worked in the trades for half a decade before moving into executive management. He's passionate about ensuring the firm's vision, values, and targets are aligned so they can maintain the highest standards for their employees, partners, and clients. His long history in the industry and his service in the military have taught him the value of an honest day's work and show him the importance of maintaining relationships, something he instills at all levels of his company. Welcome to the show, Bryson. Thanks, Don. I appreciate it. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, likewise. Well, first off, thank you for your your service uh, to the the country. That's a nothing to yeah. slouch on those. Yeah. All hats off to you. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Uh, how'd you get into the construction industry? Uh, my father was a general contractor, so he was a residential GC in the kind of Los Angeles area. So I grew up in and around it. Um, he used to flip homes. So I actually lived in probably four or five half built homes when I was growing up because he would move the family in and then build the home around us and be beautiful. And then be like, all right, we're leaving. Kind of flip our. Um, so that was a little bit of my childhood there. And then I, I moved up north to San Luis Obispo. And in my high school days, I was lucky enough to, uh, one of my good friends, their uh, father was a GC up there. And I started working in the trays with him. It was a lot of framing, concrete work, uh, was called Rouse Construction. So yeah, I had a lot of uh, experience um, from the business side where my dad was involved to the trade side and I was doing it myself. Yeah. Well, what about a gripped you to make a career out of it? You know, it, it was one of those things where I loved working the traits. Uh, there's just something about uh, hard work, working daily that uh, I really, really enjoyed. And so just naturally through that, um, getting in more to the business side. But I really saw it firsthand when I was working with uh, the gentleman, Bill Rouse up north, because it was a really small outfit. It was actually, he did all the framing and concrete himself, and I was essentially uh, his like number one assistant. So I got to see a lot on the business side with him mm -hmm. early on. And uh, then when uh, I came back to L.A., I had an opportunity to work with my father on a large project in downtown L.A. And again, it was just uh, my father and myself um, in a large adaptive reuse downtown. And that's when I kind of got thrown into the fire back then and um, uh, started a company back then. And about half, about 18 months into that, uh, my father retired and was like, I'm not doing this anymore. Have fun with this. This is kind of like the learning from a, you know, drinking from a fire hose. So I took that and ran with it. And God, that was 20 years ago, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, so kind of thrown into it. And since then had kind of ventured out into a lot of different things, but I've always loved it. I've always loved the build side of it. But um, as I started to get more into the business side, I actually realized I loved the business aspect of it even more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So kind of building out on the, the corporate side, how do you build and, and then really maintain a, a good corporate culture? in construction when 
the team is not all in the same spot at the same time. They're spread out over job sites and some are in the office, some yeah. are in the field. How, how do you maintain yep. that culture? Yeah, and that's, and that's uh, a, a constant conversation that we have. You know, when we started, uh, there was only a handful of us. And at one point, we got up to 60 plus people. And so in construction, it's very difficult, right? You have projects. We have projects all over Los Angeles. Uh, people spread out all over. So I started reading all these books on culture and, you know, the Tony, uh, Tony Zappos and things like that, all these people uh, and innovators in the kind of culture world. And the first thing I started coming away with was none of this really applies to construction because I don't have 200 people on a single floor in an office. Right. So I'm not a tech company. I'm not a financial company. Um, so we kind of had to step back and look at it from a different angle of how do you create this culture when your people are are spread all over. Um, and it's been difficult. It's a, it's a constant, it's a constant, uh, kind of riddle for us of how do you continually bring people back in and kind of remind them like, Hey, you're part of a bigger company here with a bigger vision and values. So what we've done, uh, and we were lucky enough to work under, uh, this EOS model, which I'm, I'm sure you've heard of before. Mm -hmm. Uh, we have a kind of, a, a two pronged approach where Quarterly, we'll bring everybody in to the office and we'll do what's called a state of the company address. And that's just our opportunity to reiterate what we hope they already know, which is our vision, our values, um, our targets for the next year, what we're kind of working towards. Uh, but past that, we really spend a lot of time on how do you create these interpersonal relationships in the field with the teams? Because I was having a great conversation with a friend the other day about this, about culture. And is this concept that, you know, all companies have to have this culture like Elon Musk and Tesla or Richard Branson and Virgin. And that general concept is just not realistic, right? What if you're John Doe and you sell paper clips? It's like, there's not a huge amount of social impact there. There's not a huge amount of purpose behind that, but it's a great company yeah. to work for. People will stay there. So we started looking at that and uh, you know, his comment to me was, they're not staying there because they love John Doe, who's a normal business owner. They're not staying there because they love and they're passionate about selling paper clips at the end of the day. They're staying there because of the people that they work with and the interpersonal relationships that they've created and the quality of life that they create. So I really love that uh, kind of viewpoint on it of you have to have a good culture and a good base overall. But once it, the company starts to grow, you end up with this scenario of you really need to make sure that you're creating really quality relationships. So you're creating quality of life for your employees. And that comes from a feeling of belonging overall. That mm -hmm. uh, we spend time on that. So on job sites, for example, we'll tell our project managers, hey, you need to take your people out for happy hour. You know, do whatever you want to create that connectivity. So there's more than just a job. It's a relationship. Um, and we found that they'll stay because of those relationships. They're not going to stay because, hey, we think Bryson is really great and we really love this vision. As much as I would hope that they would stay because of that, realistically, when you step back, it's they're staying because the people next to them, they enjoy working with them. They enjoy showing up to work every day and the back and forth and belonging and that type of community that you create. So we spend a lot of time doing that um, and that seems to work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that relationship uh, aspect of it is is huge. And that's where you are able to to scale up and down and maintain a, a good, healthy culture. How have you found uh, works well to really empower the the ownership on the, the individual level to take the the, the mantle of uh, you know developing and fostering those relationships and, and yeah. run with it? 
Yeah, for us, it starts, you know, uh, starts at the executive level. And again, we, we have a pretty good uh, uh, operating system that we work under with the EOS program. Uh, but yeah, and it just goes down kind of like direct report to direct report to direct report. So making sure that uh, when you talk about those relationships, I look at our executive team and say, I have this really amazing relationship with this group of, of six people that we have here. But then you realize out in the field, um, you really need to let your project management team know. So if we bring all of our project management team in for project management meeting, we'll really let them know, hey, we want you to be doing things with your team outside of just the day-to-day grind, the day-to-day, um, all the way to creating culture budgets where it's like, hey, we're going to give you a budget to go out, do whatever you want with it. Um, obviously, let us know what you're doing with it and, and give us some feedback on how it's working. Um, but you know, people will just do simple happy hours and go have drinks and then hopefully we're notified so we can go partake in that. Um, you know, K1 speedway, ski shooting, uh, you know, golfing, things like that. But that's more on a, a project team level than it is on a company wide level. And then on the company wide side, again, we don't ignore that, but we do have our quarterly state of the company address, really kind of bring the whole team back together to get them re-energized behind the vision. Uh, and then, you know, we usually do one or two larger company events a year to try and get everyone together. I think that works well, but at the end of the day, it's really creating those experiences um, for those individuals to where they feel that connection um, and they don't feel like they're just alone in this random job. Right. Yeah. I I like how you guys have built in uh, the different cadences of, you know, the the small group and then you expand that out. You have a a cadence there with a a little bit larger group and then the company wide, you have a a cadence there. I think having all those those rhythms really helps to weave a, a, a great foundation there. Yep. Yeah. And that helps. So, so on the construction side, it works well. Um, it's a little bit easier if you're all in one location, you know, 24 hours a day, like that sure. type of thing. Like you, you don't have to worry about bringing people in, but in the construction world, it's worked well for us. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so kind of expanding that out to the project side of things, you know, yeah. having the, the right people on the bus and in the yep. right seats is a, a huge uh, make or break aspect of, of really any project. So how do you go about thinking through selecting the the right team for the specific project? Yeah. Yeah. And I love you, you use those uh, EOS terms there, you know, the, the right people and the right seats. That's, that's a big part of that. And so what we've done for, you know, essentially trying to find the right teams and setting a project up for success is we take that model um, and it's right people, right seats, but taking it a little farther, it's like, what are the right firms for the right projects? Mm-hmm. Uh, so we do owner's representation, construction management work. We do real estate development. We do uh, general contracting. So we're lucky enough to really have the whole ecosystem covered and have had the ability to see all all aspects of it. So we've seen it from the development side. We've seen it from the management side. We've seen it from the build side. And for setting things up for success on a project side, finding the right people, you know, the amount of times that we see uh, owner developers just cherry pick a, a random group of teams and throw them in a pot and then hope it all works out. I mean, it's it's probably more the norm than not. Uh, so we really try and focus on working with clients and saying, hey, you know, you need to pick the right team project. You know, we'll take it back to like, um, you know, if you're a surgeon and you're, uh, you're going in and you don't want a, a throat surgeon if you're having a knee surgery. And you especially don't want that, you know, surgeon working with a team that he's never worked with before in terms of, you know, nurses, anesthesiologists. You want the best knee surgeon for that knee surgery who's working with a team that he's worked with 10 times before. So they all know what success looks like. 
um, at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. So we take that and we try and bring that to a project level. So if we're working on a specific project, like a historic adaptive reuse, we want to make sure we're bringing in the right architecture firm gets had success with that. Um, but we'll even go a little bit deeper than that. It's not just the architecture firm, right? So say if you're working with Gensler, people love Gensler. It's an amazing firm. But we say, that's great that you're working with Gensler. But what we want to know is, who's the architect you're working within Gensler? And does that person or that team have the experience that we need to be successful? Mm -hmm. And then you'll go to teams that they love working with. Do they have any structural teams that they love working with, civil teams? And then we'll take that and we'll go down deeper and say, great, uh, this person loves working with Glumac. Well, who do you know at Glumac that you've worked with before? Oh, well, I know Dave over there at Glumac. He's amazing. So we'll try and really bring a real team together where they know each other, they've worked with each other before, and you can do that. Creating that uh, those interpersonal relationships on a project level is going to solve so many problems because you're starting the project off with this mindset of collaboration out of the gate with people that know each other. Where if you just throw a bunch of firms and people together that have never worked with each other, you don't have yeah. that and there's not a lot of I don't know what you want to call it, loyalty or people looking out for each other at the end of the day. It's that's where you end up with a lot of finger pointing and not my job. You know, it was architect's fault, it was engineer's fault. Um, so we do a lot of that upfront work and we've had a lot of success with it. Yeah. Well, it goes back to the culture and the relationship that you're trying to to work out on, on building there. Uh yep. so but being willing to to say no to certain projects and and certain people, uh that's not an easy thing <laughs> to do. So uh, how is really having that willingness to say no, how has that led to long-term success for you guys? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's specific to our project type on the build side that we do. You know, we've done a lot of historic adaptive reuse. So we learned early on, uh, that you can, there's kind of one way to do those right if, properly. So when someone would come to us and we see, I call it old school contract where we see um, people that will work for 12 to 16 months with their design team, putting together this beautiful set of plans on a large project. Then they'll turn and they'll look at four GCs and they'll give them three weeks to prepare a competitive pricing. And that to me is just the most insane style of contracting I've ever seen or development because why are you spending 16 months with your design team and then turning around to the team that's going to actually build it and giving them three weeks, it's basically a race to the bottom at the end of the day. Right. Uh, so it's very, very easy for us when, when clients approach us with that mentality where it's a hard pass for us. And then we'll try and educate them the reasons why it's a hard pass and all the things and all the issues that they're going to encounter. But we see a lot of savvy developers that have built a lot of projects continue to use this method uh, and continue to wonder why their projects are always an issue. Right? Why is there always delays? Why is there always schedule issues? Why are we getting so many change orders? Um, and it's because they kind of lost that um, collaborative mindset of you need to bring in your builder early on um, in, and that more of a team mindset, get that pre-construction work done so you can kind of find all that work out. So for us, if they don't share that mindset, then we'll just politely pass on those projects. Yeah, no, that makes a, a ton of sense. So what should the role of the contractor really be on the project team? And when's, when is that ideal time to bring in that contractor voice? Yeah. And I mean, it's, there's a lot of different schools of thought on it, right? Like you go all the way back to, 
you know, integrated project delivery where they should be part of it along with the subcontractor team from day one to really kind of to, to, to build the project properly. Uh, that's, that's a tough sell for a lot of, a lot of people, unless people are coming out of the gate with that mindset. So what we like to see in a bare minimum is like, look, if you're at, uh, you know, uh, 50% SDs, we like to see the general contractor get involved from a pre-construction standpoint, uh, to start working through creating a relationship with the architect, with the MEP team, with the structural team and start looking at it, doing constructability reviews early on um, so you can uh, you can actually uh, shift the course of the project early because what happens is we see these things get to you know 75% CDs well at that point you're too far gone and you're going to have to redesign the project if you didn't catch a lot of things so if you bring in the GC early uh, do constructability review engage them for quality pre-con get those rough order magnitude pricings done early you can continually track your project all the way up to the start date to make sure you're starting it where you want it to start, your schedule's where you want it to be, um, as opposed to that three-week process, you get the pricing back in, well, you're $10 million over budget. So what do you do now? You know, it's not a, that's, that's not really a value engineering process anymore. That's a full redesign, rescoping issue. And now you've lost months and months of time and you're going back to the drawing board. And we've seen that happen time and time again with, with uh, owners and developers. Bridging the Gap is powered by Graytech Group. As a global BIM and modeling expert, Graytech is dedicated to empowering construction and manufacturing professionals to digitize and industrialize their processes to improve performance and build a sustainable tomorrow. With more than 30 years in the industry, they know how to be your partner in a world where change is the new normal and always strive to enable their customers to gain an increased competitive advantage to model the future. Visit greatech-group.com for more information. Yeah. What are some of the, the goals and in, in KPIs that you like to, to look at to determine success on a project? You know, it's all the, it's all those very high level ones that any owner is looking at, right? It's, it's budget, number one, it's schedule, number two and the quality of the work. So, you know, when we're looking at things, those are the three big metrics that we work with. So um, that's where we want to spend a lot of time up front understanding what are the targets that we're trying to make. And I'm always wearing a lot of different hats, right? So depending on what conversation am I, am I talking as a construction manager, owner's rep, am I talking as a general contractor right now? But for everyone, you know, the general concept is if I have an initial target budget where I'm a real estate developer and I've underwritten this project to these metrics, I need this project to be done at $10 million. That's something where from a construction management standpoint, we're tasked with making sure that happens. And then we want to bring in the general contractor and the teams early on to make sure that we hit those marks. You'd be surprised at the amount of teams that we see put together that have no idea what the budget target is. You know, architecture teams too. Well, we'll see really amazing projects and I'll ask the architect, well, what are you, what are you designing to? What, what's the end budget? Oh, we don't know. We just want to design the most beautiful project we can. And then we go back to the client. We're like, well, what's your budget? Oh, it's a really tight budget. We need to make sure that we get this thing done at this number. It's like, well, your architects over here designing the most beautiful project they can, which means probably a very expensive project. And they just don't have those conversations because they think, well, the architect's designing it and they generally have the concept of what I want. But they don't spend the time to say, hey, budget is important. This is my target. I really need you to design to that and actually put that in your contract. 
And if you don't, and you design a project that's $20 million, when I asked you a $10 million project, I'm not going to pay you again to redesign that project. There's a lot of contractual things as well that you can put in place to protect yourself, but budget is a key metric. And then schedule always, right? Schedule is one of those things that people forget about. Um, they just see it as a factor of once it's designed, put a schedule together and see where we land. But that's something that uh, we see really kills a lot of developers with delays, but it also really affects general contractors. One of the worst things that can happen to a general contractor is a project gets delayed six months, seven months, because a lot of people will think, oh, well, they're getting paid for it. They're getting extra GCs or whatever it is. That's normally not the case. It's usually a battle to get every other uh, month approved. So upfront, really digging into schedule with the entire team. Again, this your GC should be part of this conversation. How do we put together a quality schedule that we're going to be able to hit? Um, it's going to help everybody in the long term. So we'll spend a lot of time with that, um, getting into what is the critical path, what, what are our long e time items. And if we can do that and continually month over month, make sure we're tracking on that schedule. It helps a lot because people don't understand the negative effects of, um, you know, carry and things like that on a developer where, Hey, if you go over by six months, seven months, and you factor in out of carry and costs that occur on that, on all levels, uh, that little bit of pre-construction that you would have spent on the, the early days would have solved all that, you know, and now you're paying right. 10 times that because you didn't want to spend the upfront time to, to develop that program properly. Yeah. So, you know, one of the, the biggest things on the budget schedule and quality of, of work is, is getting everybody to the table talking at, at the beginning of the project, like what you were just saying on, mm -hmm. on the pre-con side of things. How do you go about changing the mindset of the industry to make that a big priority and to put way more attention and effort and resources behind that pre-con yep. section of it than what we're currently doing? Yeah, that is uh, that. That's a great question. <laughs> we talk about that a lot. Of how can you educate clients and developers? Um, you know, we've we wanted uh, to do white papers on projects that we've seen where we passed on them, and we educated the client on what was going to happen, and it happened even even more so than we anticipated. Gone two years over schedule, and doubled the budget, and like that. So I think it's just client by client. Uh, hopefully, you're you're having the ability to sit with that client and educate them. This is where we, this is why we got into construction management and orders representation, because on the GC side, usually rarely get that opportunity to sit down with the client and educate the client on how to set up a project. And usually the project's already mostly designed and you're coming in at that tail end standpoint of, hey, here's a set of plans, kind of start mm -hmm. pricing it for us. So that's what really drove us to getting involved on the owner's representation side was we saw so many problems that were so easy to solve early on. And on that level, it is a lot easier to sitting with the client and educating them up front. Now, a lot of clients don't want to hear it. Now, a lot of clients don't want to do it. We, we work with a big cost management group and they work with a big national firm. You know, this happened last week. They sent us an unbelievable space in West Hollywood, probably a, you know, eight, $9 million bill. Worked on it for 14 months, two weeks. They wanted pricing on this detailed project in two weeks. And I, I talked to the cost manager from a, in wearing my general contractor hat, saying, how are you allowing your client to go through this process? We know where this is going to end up. We're not bidding it because it, there's no way we can be successful in bidding a project of that size and scope in two weeks. But I was more just passionate about talking to this cost manager about 
why don't you go back to this client and educate them on what is going to happen? Because it's not if, it is definitely going to happen. They're going to have right. issues, miss things, they're going to be delays. And that cost manager said, well, I don't want to lose the client. So this is just what it is. It's what they're requiring us to do. So we're going to do it. So again, it's easy to say, uh, you know, sometimes you need revenue and sometimes you need to keep the wheels turning. Uh, but if you're in the fortunate position where you can pass on clients, usually what we've seen is they'll come back to you. They'll usually have an issue where they go through a couple horrible projects and they'll say, Hey, they'll remember that you, um, were telling them that, and you were again, very polite, very cordial, very professional about it, passing it in the right way. And if you do that, they'll usually remember that, come back and say, Hey, you know what? I remember all those things you said, did encounter all these things. We want to try a project with you. And then when we do see them come back with us, if they do one or two quality projects and they see what it can be like, then they're just, you know, they'll never work with another firm again. So we're always, I mean, it's industry wide where, uh, I'm very big on, uh, being collaborative on all levels in the same industry, right? So I want to go meet uh, GC CEOs and, and have breakfast with them, even though we're competitors and we'll compete on the same projects. It's like, I don't care. That's that's We're always going to have competition, but if you can have that knowledge share and stuff like that, it's so great. You know, and that mentorship or that menteeship or something like that, continually trying to educate each other and help each other in the industry is a good thing. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Do you see the momentum picking up on that front in the industry or is it still kind of in the, the one-off phase? Uh, no, I do see it. I do see it picking up. And again, it could be um, could be specific to us because we spend so much time on trying to find those clients that share that mentality. Mm -hmm. uh, so it could just be a scenario where uh, we've created that kind of community around us of people that are understanding that a little bit more. And we're very quick to pass on jobs that don't share that mentality. So it could be it could be something that we've created on our own. But yeah, you know, we are seeing more people that are open to this uh, this concept. And again, we're getting better at explaining it. People are seeing the value uh, early on. Yeah, nice. What's something that you think the construction industry, maybe besides this, is, is getting uh, wrong currently in their mindset of, of how they're doing projects? Yeah. I mean, I think it's I think it's probably for me, it's exactly what we're talking about right now. For me in the construction industry, the, the biggest failure that I see, um, and again, I, I'm really looking at this from development side, uh, management side, and, and build side. The biggest failure I see is how the industry is treating general contractors. They're treating them as, as this third-party vendor to be brought in at the last minute without quality input. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's creating a lot of the failures that we're seeing on a lot of the projects right now. You know, you, we, we're, we're working in a very, very difficult time in a very difficult industry. Um, everything that happened from the pandemic with supply chain issues and things like that. I mean, out in LA, we're 12 to 16 months to get here, things like that. So people don't understand that you need to, you need to know that early on. And a lot of times you're not going to find that until you're talking to your GC. And God forbid you don't engage them till the very end. And then they start educating about, well, that's nine months out. That's six months out. None of these schedules work. None of these targets work. You might be able to hit it, but you're going to have to redesign all these aspects of your project now to get materials that are available. Those are the quality things that can be brought to the table early on when you engage a GC early on, plus subcontractor input, right? So if you're engaged in pre-construction as a general contractor, they're bringing in their sub base and getting good sub input as well. So we've seen scenarios where we've seen entire projects redesigned from a mechanical standpoint, 
because we'll bring in our mechanical side and he'll look at the overarching design and say, this is, you know, a horrible design. It's, it's a good design in terms of, um, you know, it's got to do what it needs to do, but in terms of efficiency and how much it's going to cost you to do it, if we redesign it in this manner, it's going to cost 30% less than the exact same thing. So those are the types of things that you can get out of a good pre-construction process. Um, and looking at it from a partnership standpoint, as opposed to a third party thing. And people, the biggest argument we see on this side of the fence is, well, how do I know they're being competitive, right? If I don't go out and just give it to four or five GCs and ask for competitive bids, how do I know that GC is giving competitive pricing? There's so many checks and balances that you can put in place now from a owner standpoint to ensure the selected general contractors, you know, doing their due diligence and getting the best pricing. First and foremost, we hope you trust the contractor you're working with out of the gate. You're, you're already in a losing proposition if you don't trust the GC that you're working sure. with. But there's a lot of different things you can do from a contractual standpoint. Um, you know, there's, uh, you know, you get multiple bids per trade, you do bid analysis forms, there's transparency. So there's all those things you can put in place to make sure that you are getting competitive numbers. You're not just going to a GC and letting them give you a piece of paper with a number on it saying, this is what it's going to cost right. you. Um, so we kind of go back and say, there's, there's multiple areas where we can put in a lot of checks and balances so you can bring them on early and feel comfortable that you're going to get the best numbers. Um, and that, that's always worked for us and worked well to make sure that, uh, and it's always worked well on the end of the project as well. Nice. So one of the kind of backbones themes of this show is, is around innovation and construction. How do you think you take the kind of the heady theoretical concept of, of innovation and make it practical in the industry. Yeah. I mean that we've been tracking a lot of the, you know, we're, and everyone's always looked at the construction industry being very far behind in innovation and things like that. So we're seeing a lot more stuff happen. That's exciting in our industry. And, uh, you know, it, it's, I think it has a long way to go, but just from like a software standpoint, things like that, we're very software heavy, uh, to create efficiencies within our, our firm. So we've worked mm -hmm. with Procore for a long time. We've used Bridget Bench, you know, we use Sage for accounting. So there's a lot of different aspects you can bring to the table, um, a software standpoint to make you more efficient overall. And to, again, create that collaboration between teams, because I think the lines of communication in our industry are key. And if you don't have the right kind of uh, technology supporting that, it becomes very difficult, right? If you're just using email to try and communicate with 15 different project teams, that's going to get very spider webbed out and very hard to control overall. Right. Um, so we've, we've kind of gone heavy on that early on in, in the early days, we beta tested multiple different software programs and things like that. We ended up with Procore at the end of the day, uh, great program overall. Um, all of our projects are on it. All of our communication goes through it. All of our, uh, you know, documents are held there. So it gives us this kind of a, a little bit of an edge in the industry where we're talking about other teams that don't have any software. And again, very surprised when you get a sneak behind the curtain of some of the larger firms out there, understanding that they actually don't have a lot of software. You know, they're still using old school Excel docs and things like that. They work well, obviously, you know, they've done well over the years, right. but they just, because it's worked and because they had no need to innovate, they just kept doing that. Uh, but it's surprising to see firms of certain sizes using those old school mentalities and old school softwares and things like that. 
And then on the physical side, oh, for sure, you know, that's, that's more on the subcontractor side. We, I always love seeing the stuff that's happening in robotics and, uh, you know, the exoskeleton suits for laborers and things that are happening. So I, uh, the, the auto layout machines that are happening now, there's a lot of really cool stuff that's happening in the industry. Um, that's more on the trade side. So we don't touch that as much, uh, but on the TC and management side, we're more software focused. Yeah, that's awesome. So if I could give you all power and you could kind of snap your fingers, innovate one thing in the construction industry, what would you pick to innovate? Oh man, that's a great question. Um, one single thing to innovate within the construction industry. I mean, honestly, it goes back to that integrated project delivery idea and mm -hmm. how can you create a portal or a system, uh, that really pushes that forward and allows teams to come together in a, in a much simpler way. Cause again, I think integrated project delivery hasn't taken off because no one's created a, a software system that makes it easy for people to collaborate in that manner. It's a great idea. Um, and there's a lot of teams out there that are very well versed in it and can do it well, but it'd be nice if there was a, a very clean system that allowed people to really come in and understand it in a, in a lot better way. Because I think that's one thing that will really help the industry overall is if you see more of that integrated project delivery where the health and success of every project is dependent on every person involved and you need all those people involved early on. So how do you do that? How do you innovate? How do you bring all those people together from a software tech standpoint um, that makes it easy for everybody from the manager that managing that whole system to the people that are coming in underneath it. They understand it, they get it, uh, and they can start using it uh, project over project. The key to any good implementation is simplicity. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the easier, more simple it is, the more people are going to yeah, use it. So, hundred uh, percent. Well, how do people find out more information and, and connect with you? Um, you know, LinkedIn. Obviously, our core business is RayonRichardson.com. Our management business is the CooperativeLA.com, and then our uh, real estate development is StatelyLA.com. So, again. We have all three, all three firms. Um, we touch all kind of aspects of the commercial real estate world. So, uh, you want to reach out to us on any level. We're happy to, happy to hear from you. And, you know, we love meeting new people and doing new projects. Awesome. Well, Bryson, final question for you. What does innovation mean to you? What does innovation mean to me? Um, I think it's taking, taking something old and finding a better way to do it at the end of the day. You know, so, and that's, that's, yep. that, that brings very true in our industry is, you know, there's, uh, and how we see people interacting with GCs. For me, innovation is taking an old mentality and finding a newer, better way to do it. Love it. More than agree. Thanks so much for taking the time and yeah. uh, the conversation. Really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Thanks, Todd. I really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we talk more soon. And now it's time for my Todd takes from this episode. First take, when it comes to a good culture that employees actually want to be a part of, relationships are key. However, it goes deeper than just this. It's important to democratize the ownership of creating these solid relationships. Everyone across the company should feel empowered to help foster and develop powerful bonds. Creating an environment where people actually enjoy working with one another is incredibly powerful. Second take, 
Bryson talked about how they have these concentric circles and rhythms built into their company, which is great. So for example, the core team meets weekly to interact and bond with each other. The bigger department may meet monthly and the company as a whole can come together quarterly. Having these rhythms brings consistency and sets a wonderful cultural foundation. And finally, when we are able to start a project off with a mindset of collaboration, it allows the ability to run harder, farther, quicker. Yes, it will mean spending more dedicated and focused time in pre-con, but that will pay back dividends later on. As my friend Nathan Wood of Construction Progress Coalition says often, rising tides lifts all boats. That is true in this case as well. All stakeholders will benefit when the entire project team can come together at the start to proactively discuss the project instead of being forced into a reactive process like we have done for far too long. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you are interested in learning more, you can visit our sponsor, Applied Software Great Tech Group at asti.com for more information. You can listen to this podcast anytime by simply going to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out our website, bridgingthegappod.com. As always, I'm Todd Wyant, thanking you for listening to the Bridging the Gap podcast. Keep innovating. Bridging the Gap is hosted, directed, and produced by Todd Wyant. Edited and produced by Eric Daniel. Bridging the Gap is an applied software production. Copyright Applied Software 2022.